seated. And if you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, today we're going to be examining 1 Corinthians 15, which is the Apostle Paul's probably most significant contribution to the doctrine of the resurrection. And he is addressing the issue of the resurrection at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 because amongst all the other false ideas that had crept into the Corinthian church, they had begun to believe that there was no resurrection from the dead, no resurrection of the dead. And Paul's primary line of reasoning to correct them is to say that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then, well, really everything crumbles. First uh, Corinthians 15 is a huge passage, almost 60 verses and fairly complicated or dense rhetorical style. But I think we can understand Paul's basic argument by his repeated use of words like vain and futile. He uses those words over and over again. For instance, in verse 14, he uses it twice. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, when we hear the word vanity, we think, I think, probably first and foremost of that thing in our bathrooms uh, or, or perhaps just this, uh, the person in the bathroom adoring themselves too much in the mirror. That's the second kind of definition of vanity. But when the Bible uses the word vain, it really means futility or emptiness, nothingness, uselessness, and so forth. And Paul uses this phrase over and over again saying, if Christ is not raised, this is vain, or that is vain, or this is futile, or that is futile. And the word vain in the Greek really just means empty. And so I think the main thrust, the main idea of 1 Corinthians 15 is simply this. What Paul's trying to get across is simply this. If the tomb of Jesus Christ is not empty, then everything else is. I think that's the summary statement of the entire chapter. If the tomb of Jesus Christ is not empty, then everything else about life is empty. And Paul goes about displaying this or, or teaching this in a variety of ways, and I wanna walk you through a few of those key things that have no meaning if Christ is not raised. But I wanna do it in a positive way. I wanna, wanna do it in a say, positive statement. So let's look first at verse three going to really work through verses 3 through 17 today. One of the things we'll see right away in verse 3 is this idea that all of Christianity seems to be unusually dependent on this one fact. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. You know, I would love to sit down with some, you know, thoughtful and humble representatives of other religions uh, and ask them one question. What is the central fact of your religion that if proven false, 
causes your whole religion to crumble. So I'm thinking of Jenga blocks. Years ago, we decided to make the backsplash. We were remodeling our kitchen. We, were, we had no money, and we decided to make the backsplash in our kitchen out of Jenga blocks. And it looked pretty cool, to be honest. Uh, but I remember sending Ann's to the Walmart near our house, and, and like the a Jenga set was pretty cheap back then. It was $7 for a Jenga set. And uh, I just remember her, I think Wes, or one of the, some of the girls, they were at Walmart, and some woman was just outraged because she looked over at this young, beautiful girl at Walmart, had her old shopping cart full of Jenga games, and the woman just cries like in a sense of panic, like, she's taking all the Jenga. And so this is like a, just like a thing in our family. She's buying all the Jenga. When the toilet paper crisis of 2020 hit, we were kind of like, this was the Jenga problem, you know. <laughs> but you know, there is that idea within that game of like, well, there's some skill involved, you know, and there's some luck involved, but, but there really are, at the end of the day, a few pieces you just can't remove, because if you remove those, you're done. Just end of story, it's over. And I would love to ask people from other religions, like, what, what's the block? What's your Jenga block? And, and, and I would also love to ask, is there a passage in your holy book that clearly spells out, this is our Jenga block? Because that's what we see in Christianity. Christianity has this very clear, unabashed kind of vulnerability, and that is simply this. It all depends on whether or not Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. And, and, and it's very interesting that that is so open and out there. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Very interesting that a, a major religion would, in its holy book, say, here's the thing that if removed, invalidates everything. Or to reframe it according to our proposition statement at the beginning, if the tomb is not empty, Christianity itself is empty. Spurgeon wrote, now if he did not rise from the dead, you are believing a lie. Take this home to yourselves. If he did not literally rise from the dead on the third day, this faith of yours that gives you comfort, this faith which has renewed you in heart and life, this faith which you believe is leading you home to heaven must be abandoned as a sheer delusion. Your faith is fixed on a falsehood. What other, what other prince of preachers in some other, well, who speaks like this? It continues, take this home to yourselves. If he did not literally rise from the dead on the third day, this faith of yours that gives you comfort, this faith which has renewed you in heart and life, this faith which you believe is leading you home to heaven must be abandoned as a sheer delusion. Your faith is fixed 
on a falsehood. If Jesus Christ did not die for me and did not rise again for me, I am lost. I have not a ray of comfort from any other direction. I have no dependence on anything else but Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And if that anchor fails, everything fails with it in my case, and so it must be in yours. This is a very unique thing so far as I can understand about Christianity. Not only that it is extraordinarily open about its Achilles heel, so to speak, and saying, here's the one spot, the one brick that if removed, invalidates everything else. But here's the other very interesting thing about that. The, the one brick that could potentially be removed is a fact which at the time it was stated could have been falsified. Meaning, even if some other religion said this is our central idea, I'm pretty confident that none of them put forth a fact and put forward that fact from the very beginning, which could have been verified or falsified in the very beginning. So not only is Paul saying, here's the Jenga brick, he's actually saying Jesus appeared to 500 people and most of them are still alive. Meaning, I dare you, go talk to one of them. Go find one of these witnesses. And, and, and so it's very interesting to me that if you were trying to create a religion, which of course that's the whole narrative of, of postmodern thinking about religion is that these were all just uh, scheming guys looking for ways to control things through various inventions and various religious inventions. It's like, man, if you're trying to create a religion, you might not want to make your Jenga block known and also make it something which is just a fact that can be verified or falsified. Here you go. That's what we see happening in Christianity. That's what we see happening in this text. Christianity has always been transparent about its reliance upon this particular claim, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And they've always been very clear, especially at the beginning, that this is a claim which could be verified by the first audience that was reading these words. Now, Kind of one of my goals, I'm not trying to make anybody in our church an apologist where they're just an expert uh, debater with high rhetorical skill, uh, able to defend the historicity of the resurrection to anybody. You know, I, you know, I, I feel like you got, you've already got a job, right? But what I really would like to try to do over the years of ministering to you is I would like to be able to give you a level of confidence where you could say to a friend, the evidence is pretty strong. And so just as a stopping point every Easter, I just feel this need to kind of give you another arrow in your quiver to help you to be able to say, even just internally, yeah, this is, this is real. And you can see why it's so important that this is real. And so uh, we've talked about it in different ways over the different uh, Easters that I've been at this church. But today I'll just present to you a really quick acronym. It's not not a major part of the message, but just as another way of assuring you, uh, one of the ways that people talk about the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is through the acronym FEAT, F-E-A-T. And just real quickly, the, the argument for, there are four kinds of evidence in this particular argument. The first is, is that Jesus was fatally tormented, that the torment he received, both through the beatings and the sleep deprivation and the stress and trauma, and then through the crucifixion itself, 
and then through the spear in his side, that all of that torment, multiple pieces of that were enough to be fatal. And this idea is just to say, no, he really did die. A part of the fatal torment uh, line of evidence is just to remind folks that Romans kind of knew what a dead guy looked like. They were, they were expert crucifiers, and that they declared him dead and put guards outside his tomb so that others would not attempt to rob it um, or to remove his body. So the first piece of evidence in the FEAT acronym is just that there's this sense that Jesus was fatally tormented. He really was dead. And the second piece of evidence is simply that there was a known place where Jesus was laid. It was named explicitly in the early manuscripts and early discussions within Christianity so that everybody knew this is the place where Jesus was laid. There are multiple witnesses to that that were not only for Jesus but against him. There were Jewish and Roman witnesses that knew exactly the place where Jesus was laid, and there was indeed a verifiable empty tomb. So the third piece of evidence is that there were multiple appearances, and so you could have gone to multiple people in real time uh, at that time and asked, did you see Jesus after his resurrection? And then the third piece of evidence is the radical transformation you see amongst people who were once against him who were once unpersuaded about his divinity, who suddenly became persuaded. And one of them is writing <laughs> our passage in 1 Corinthians 15 today, who was a persecutor of the church, who was absolutely opposed to this idea of Jesus as God and had a radical transformation. And he's not alone. Even close relatives of Jesus were themselves transformed by the evidence of the resurrection. So all that to say, this is a really big deal that this is true. And it is true. And even if you're not an expert, I can assure you that there are bins and bins of, of evidence that you could dive into to find the truth about this and that you can, at any time you needed to, and it may be necessary at some point, at any time you needed to, you could, with a relatively open and intellectually honest heart, turn to the evidence and be reassured that Jesus Christ indeed has risen. I, I would put it this way. If you have no other presuppositions that might get in the way, if you can believe that Alexander the Great existed, using the exact same way that you would decide that, you can believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Okay, that's, that's, it's important for us to, to know this and to feel confident in this. Now, that's one thing that we would see go away immediately and it's a big one, if Jesus was not raised, and that is Christianity would go away. It, it just can't stand without a risen Christ. But there's another piece of this. So we talked, we talked in that point about the resurrection as like this key fact. But, but now I want you to think about the resurrection as the Christian's forecast. So look back at our text. We've gone through verses three through seven. Now let's pick up in verse eight. Paul's describing Jesus appearing to various people. And in verse eight, he says, lastly, he appeared to me as one untimely born. Verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. 
whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, locking on this phrase, I worked harder than any of them. If you're visiting today, welcome. We've been talking, we've been in Acts 20, 21 for quite some time, and we've been seeing these places where Paul just explicitly says things like, I have chosen to devote myself to working hard to help the weak. Or again, in chapter 20, Paul says, I don't count my life as anything, only that I might fulfill the mission that God's given me. Over and over again, we see this, this level of earnest, sincere, grinding work that Paul is committed to. And in this text, he says, I worked harder than any of them. And the question is, like, where is all of this hustle coming from? What is moving Paul to work this hard? Well, not only did Paul see the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the central fact of Christianity, but he saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a forecast for all Christians, as a forecast for all Christians. I have a question, and I really would love to hear your thoughts on this at some point privately. Why do people care more about the weather when they get older? Because it's starting to happen to me, and I'm confused. <laughs> My dad has a first-generation iPad, and the only app that still works on it is the weather app. And he's got this first-generation iPad mounted to his wall in his office, and it just runs the weather constantly. And why, why is it when you get older that you care more about the weather? I've, I check the weather more now, and I've checked the weather more this year than I did the, the, the first 45 years of my life. Um, and especially the 10-day forecast. 10-day forecast is very important to me for some reason now, and I don't know why. I like the word forecast uh, for describing what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 15. Because he says that the resurrection of Jesus is sort of the forecast for your future as a Christian. He says that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul's main idea here is that because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we too, as believers in Jesus, will also rise that Jesus' resurrection from death is the forecast of our own future resurrection. And this resurrection that all believers will experience is glorious. In verse 42, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So the idea is you look at the resurrection of Jesus and you say, I'm going to do that too. One day I'm going to die and I'm going to lay there in the ground. And upon God's command, I will receive a new body 
and that new body will be suited for a future reality, a future glory that Jesus himself is experiencing right now. Now, what's the purpose of a forecast? I suppose if you are like an extreme weather nerd, you might, have, you might just want to know the 10-day forecast in Portland, even though you don't know anybody in Portland and you don't plan to go to Portland. I guess like there's a level of weather nerd that would, might want to know that. But the real reason we look to a forecast is we're trying to plan our lives. And that's how Paul treated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He worked harder than anyone because he looked at what would become of him after he died. And he wasn't afraid of laying it all down now. He planned his life around the forecast of his future resurrection following the same pattern of Jesus' resurrection. And so what's really interesting is that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have both a fact and a philosophy. This is very, very interesting. Okay, so the resurrection of the dead of Jesus is, is like the central fact of Christianity, but it's also basically the central thing that we do as Christians. And that is, we trust God all the way down to death, whether that's dying to ourselves on a Tuesday or whether that's dying to ourselves by getting up and reading God's word when we really don't feel like it, or it's dying to ourselves and confessing sin, or it's dying to ourselves and receiving correction from another brother or sister. We trust God all the way to that moment that we just feel crushed, undone, in the darkness, like that we have become the seed that has fallen to the ground and died, and then entrusting God all the way to that level we experience resurrection. And it, it could be a resurrection from, I'm receiving correction from a friend, I, it's, it, it hurts, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I'm a little angry, I'm sitting here, I'm trusting God, God tells me this is a good thing for me to receive this. So I'm gonna receive it, and then you submit, you trust, you fall to the ground, you die to self, and something emerges out of that act of trust. And this is actually, this is pretty cool. So it's a verifiable fact, Jesus raised, was risen from the dead, but it's also a whole philosophy for your whole life that works at every single level of your life, whether big or small, whether we're talking about learning a language or raising your kids or staying married. It's all this seed cycle. It's all this falling to the ground in trust, Res not resisting, just, just submitting to God, doing what he says, even through the most uncomfortable and difficult parts. And then it's about emerging out of that experience of trust, out of, of this sort of existential crisis, emerging out of that better, more fruitful, more like Christ. It's about obeying God even to the point of extreme self-denial to the point like you can't do it anymore, the point where you've become nothing, the point of extreme discomfort. And this is why it's so important to know if you have an idle kind of relationship with comfort because it will keep you from participating in the seed cycle. You'll keep jumping out right before the moment when the good stuff happens. And when you do this, when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord 
in proper time, in due time, God will lift you up. And when he lifts you up, you will be more lifted up than you were when you started the process. And this seems to me to be the kind of philosophy that our world needs, terribly, terribly needs. Um, because it seems to me that the basic problem in the world is selfishness. And yet it also seems to me that God has built us to want to be happy. And how do these two things reconcile when we have to, when, when the truth is, is that this world needs people who will lay down their happiness for the sake of others, but I want to be happy. And Paul discovered that the resurrection cycle is the way. Because he can spend this life laying down his rights, laying down his comfort, laying down his joys, and it, with confidence that in the next life, he will be rewarded. That's why this resurrection as a philosophy is the very thing I think we need in this world. If you're paying attention, you'll find that the people who try their hardest to make this life their heaven wind up making it hell for other people. And if you're paying attention, you'll see that they're takers and that everything's about them and they hoard comfort and security and they're sexual consumers and users of people and even their pursuit of God is bound up in their own selfishness. There's another way of living. And it's the way of living that Paul undertook and that is I'm willing to go through hell in this life to make, because I know in the, because this is not my heaven, right? I know this is not my reward. Now if you pay attention to those kinds of people, you'll find this really interesting thing when someone's willing to die to self and go through metaphorical hell in this life, they actually make this life a little bit more like heaven for other people, which is exactly what Paul did. He suffered because he wasn't trying to wring all of the joy and comfort and pleasure out of this life. He had a whole eternity to get that stuff. What he wound up doing was he wound up making life better for other people today. And that's what Jesus did. He went to the cross, he obeyed the Father to the point that he was crushed, and then he emerged from the grave victorious, having brought many sons and daughters to glory who would follow him in the resurrection way of life. Not simply returning to the state that he was before, but ascending above even that to where he himself is the author and perfecter of all who are being saved. And Paul figured out that in addition to being a verifiable fact, resurrection was an actual way of life. And so he starts talking like that. When, he, when, he, when, when the Corinthians are saying, well, we're not sure we believe in the resurrection, Paul's like, well, then I'm toast. My whole life makes no sense. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. In verse 30 of chapter 15, he says, why are we in danger every hour? He's talking about himself. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. He's participating in the resurrection philosophy, the resurrection way of life every day. I die every day. And then he says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul sees there's two options. 
either I live in the resurrection cycle or I engage in earnest, sincere, uh, oh, what's the word? Epicureanism. I basically eat and drink and party and, and fulfill and satisfy my flesh because tomorrow I die. And that's it. So this is basically the plan for the good of the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul is concluding his whole argument. He says, therefore, my brothers, because there is a resurrection from the dead, because you don't have to wring everything out of this life, because the next life is the life for reward and rest and pleasure. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's that word again. Empty, vain. The tomb of Jesus is not empty. It's all empty. Everything's empty. So we've seen that, 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 that if the resurrection has this fact, this resurrection has this forecast, but one of the keys to this text is the resurrection's connection to forgiveness. I don't... I don't know if you find it as remarkable that, as I do that Christianity puts forward its jingle block and that that jingle block was verifiable. I don't know if you think that's crazy good. I think it's crazy good. I don't know if you think it's super cool that the resurrection is actually a way of living. I think that's really cool. But all of that is for not if one thing isn't dealt with. We've made our way through verses three through 11, now let's go to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, and we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. It starts to feel like the princess bride speech a little bit there. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I could nerd out all day about how the resurrection is an epistemology, an eschatology, and a philosophy. Like, it's crazy to me. But it's important to understand Jesus did not come to earth, take on flesh, and allow himself to be murdered to inspire you. You and I need something far more than inspiration. You may have a variety of reasons for coming today, uh, but you are not here in terms of God's opinion. Like, like God has you, you're not here to be inspired mostly. To think that Jesus would do all he did just to, just to be a good example is to think too low of the cost that Jesus endured and too high of ourselves. Uh, we, are, we are not in the position to simply need merely an example. We need forgiveness of our many sins. You know, this whole participation in the resurrection cycle, your first experience of that has to be, all of us, we're all gonna have a variety of different experiences. 
Some of you might die to self by how you treat a neighbor this week, you know, while I might die to self by choosing not to have, like, fifth dinner, you know, whatever. Like, we're all going to have different experiences, but we all start with the same resurrection, resurrection cycle experience, and that is <laughs> we stand before a God acknowledging we are fundamentally guilty of sinning in ways that only God sees. And it's not just that we've done bad things. It's that even our motives themselves are selfish and bent. All of us, uh, our first experience with the resurrection style uh, cycle, it's all the same. We all stand condemned and like crushed by the burden of our sinfulness. And we realize that there is no hope for us if God does not extend his grace. The way that that piece of the passage ends in verse 17, if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. Why is that true? I mean, couldn't Jesus was a pretty good guy, whether he rose from the dead or not. I mean, could it just be that a really good guy died for, a really good guy died for my sins and like I'm okay? Why why does he have to raise to prove that I'm forgiven? Why is his resurrection confirmation of my forgiveness? Because I mean, a quick way of describing it would be simply if anybody other than God had died for your sins, you're still in your sins. Cuz your sins were God-sized. They have eternal offense because they were committed against an eternal God. And so the need is not simply for a really good person to die for my sins. The need is for God himself to take on the eternal offense of my sins in his eternal character, his eternal being, and to die once for what I would die forever for if I were cut off from God. And Spurgeon says it this way, if the atonement of Christ for sin had been unsatisfactory, he would have remained in the grave. He went there on our behalf, a hostage for us, and if what he did upon the tree has not satisfied the justice of God, then he would never have come out of the grave again. Think for a minute what our position would be if I stood here to preach only a dead and buried Christ. And then he goes on in his message to say, Jesus' death was the payment for your sins, but Jesus' resurrection is the receipt, acknowledging that God has accepted that payment. And that's really where every single Christian journey begins. I think it's incredibly cool to be part of a faith that puts its jingle blocks out there. I think it's incredibly cool to be part of a faith that says, this is the way you live. Trust God all the way to the point where you think, I can't do this any longer. And in due time, God will lift you up. I think these are th amazing things. This is how we start in that journey. We stand before God and we say, you had to suffer death to pay for my sin. And because 
your payment was perfect, you were not held hostage or captive by death, but rose again. It's very interesting that in some ways the gospel is news, information, facts, and then it's something we submit to and surrender to. And so these first two points of the message are really the way that any person here can know for sure that they're his, and they're going to go to heaven when they die, and they're going to participate in the resurrection. The good news, Jesus died for you. Now, accept that, trust it, surrender to it, all the way down to the grave, and then back out of it. Let me pray for us.